Let's go through every single package installed with a Linux install image. I'm going through the software included with Slackware, but these are all open source applications and libraries, so whether you're running Slackware like me, or Fedora, Debian, BSD, or even Mac or Windows, you can probably download, install, and try these on your computer. So chances are, you'll be able to learn something from this podcast. Let's get started. Mahjong. K-Mahjong specifically is what's up next. And this is a... a I'd never played Mahjong before. But in, anticipa in anticipation of this episode, I asked someone to show me how to play because I knew that they knew how to play. So we played a couple of games and I feel like I kind of... I kind of get it. I'll admit though, there is some... There's... There are certain points to the the rules where I just I can't quite figure out e exactly the the conditions that apply but we'll just we'll we'll talk about mahjong very simply. First of all, mahjong is not one of those super ancient games from China or Japan. It's from China, but you know like when when you think of a a game like Go or uh there's another one that I'm 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 not remembering right now off the top of my head. You think, "Oh, this is an ancient ancient game." from from a civilization that you know you may or may not know anything about because it's because you know you didn't get the history lesson in school about that particular uh continent and and so it's uh it's strange but mahjong is actually pretty recent uh sort of i mean it's from the 19th century which um admittedly isn't like all that recent i mean it's older than monopoly for instance but it's not it's not like one of those really really just before the dawn of time types of games like uh Ur or um uh what's the other one with the pebbles that you um Mancala things like that you know that people are just like oh this is the the oldest game around uh mahjong is not that it is it is a a young game compared to a couple of others uh but an old game compared to you know others so anyway it's it's a game i i knew that it was uh, uh like my my familiar the, the only thing i knew about mahjong really was that i i was pretty sure it was like one of those default applicate game you know desktop games on old operating systems like i just kind of felt like that like i'd heard about mahjong in terms of like people uh whiling away time on windows 98 or something like that but playing it is is it's kind of cool so k mahjong is the KDE implementation of it. And unsurprisingly, maybe if you're, if you're following the trends here, there are a bunch of different themes that you can choose from, different backgrounds, different even board layouts. Now, the board layout thing is kind of, kind of interesting because, um, that's sort of like the setup of the board of the, you know, if the, if this is a board game, the setup of the board itself can change, and that's kind of interesting because that's not necessarily. I don't think that's necessarily a um, an expectation. I mean, maybe it is, but uh, you know, you you don't have to give people alternative layouts of a board. There's there's certainly a default, and you could just leave it at that. But there are actually different different layouts, so that's kind of fun. And that, of course, is available from configure the set uh, settings configure kmajong there's board layout there's the tiles which is the the theme of the tiles and then there's the background 
Now, again, if you're following along, then you may know that I, I love that Egyptian theme, the ancient Egyptian theme in the KDE games, and, and just in general. It's a motif that I, I'm, I'm quite fond of. Uh, and so that's what I'm playing with. But really, what, you know, what, what I should be playing with is, um, the traditional Chinese layout, which has a couple of different kinds of tiles. There, if you, if you picture, if you've never played, picture dominoes. And these dominoes are stacked in a specific way. They're in a big pile in the center of the table. Some of the dominoes have dots on them. Others have bamboo and others have Chinese characters on them. Or if you're playing a different theme, you might have, uh, some with plants, some with, um, circle decorations and some with animals and people whatever the goal of the game is to if i if let's see if i can even remember what the goal of the game is well the goal of the game is to get down to no tiles so you're going to be removing tiles which you might think well that sounds pretty easy i'll just start grabbing tiles well of course there are rules around which tiles you can or cannot grab and that's the part that confuses me still um the person that taught me how to play wasn't 100% sure about the rules, or the constraints, rather. Because obviously in real life, if you make a mistake and no one catches the mistake, then that just becomes the new rule, right? That's that's kind of the advantage-disadvantage of playing physical board games, is that the rules get to adapt to the convention of the people sitting at the table. And if no one catches it, or if both players misunderstand a constraint, then it just doesn't, it doesn't figure into the playing. So computers tend to be a little bit more clear on the rules, but they're not always clear on explaining those rules. So what I sort of gather is that, first of all, I believe that the board set up on K Mahjong is uh, sideways, which means that in, I think, from the perspective of, of, of the screen, in real life, if you were playing this game, you would be 90 degree angle of where you are now. You would be sitting at your computer monitor on either the, the left or the right end of your computer monitor. You'd like f- f- lay your monitor down flat and then get out f- from in front of your keyboard and go to the side of your desk so that you are now looking at your monitor long ways. That's what I think. And I believe the rule is that you can take a tile from it, what's in front of you as long as it's on an edge. So if it is, um, if, if, if it is bordered by only, I think, well, if it has, if it has one free border, you can take that tile. That's what I'm trying to say. So, but again, this is especially confusing because in the, the way that you're looking at the board on K Mahjong, I believe First of all, it's top-down, and I believe 90 degrees tilted. Okay, so getting past that, I think the, the, the thing to remember then is that as long as there is a east or west, either the east or the west edge of a tile is not bordered by another tile, then you may take that tile. Of course, in order to take any tile, you need to find another tile with the east or the west facing side open that matches the tile that you want to take. This can be a little bit tricky on on this top-down view on the computer, I, I find. However, 
K-Mahjong has a really nice thing where if you scroll your mouse wheel, it tilts the iso what is it, isomorphic view just a little bit. Like, uh, you know, it's, it's as if though you're sort of looking around the top, the top level, the, the top view, the bird's eye view of your board, you get to like shift your, shift your view. So you get to see a little bit more of each tile from a different angle. And, and, and so it, it, yeah, it, it shifts that isomorphic view either to the north, south, east, or the west, uh, as you scroll. And it's quite useful. It's a very subtle change, but it's a, it's a significant one because it kind of, it shows you, oh yeah, okay, there's a, there's a tile underneath that tile, you know, so it, it helps you kind of, um, figure out what's actually free and, and what the levels are. So as long as you remember that, the, the simple-ish rule of there needs to be a um, east or west facing border available, it, it tends to be pretty doable. Um, it, it does, it can, it gets confusing though. And, and I think there are some, some things that, that I don't quite understand. Like here, here I've just done, I've, I've gotten a tile with a flower on it. And it's, as far as I can tell, it's western border is free. Oh yeah, that works. Okay, never mind. Uh, I just mismatched. Yeah, I think that's the key. East or west border needs to be free. Simple, simple, simple. So it, it, it starts to feel pretty impossible pretty quickly, honestly. You, um, you just think, well, there's not gonna, I've run out of tiles. I've just, I've exhausted the possibilities. But, if the game isn't telling you that the game is over, if K Mahjong doesn't tell you, hey, game over, then believe it or not, there is another tile that you can find to remove. So, what is this? This is the 19th century version of the quintessential, 100% quintessential mobile game. Like, if you think of what a mobile game is, you know, kind of like mindless... I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just sometimes you need something kind of mindless to do. Mobile game, you just mindlessly, you're clicking on things, right? And you don't know how long that game is going to last because you're on the bus. And you have to get to your bus stop. And until you get to the bus stop, that game is on. And so you're just clicking and clicking and clicking and things flash and blink and disappear and collide and all that other stuff, right? Well, Mahjong is the really simple version of that. I could absolutely see someone making a ridiculously, heck, I should probably do it myself, that'd be a good little project for me, a ridiculously flashy, blinky Mahjong game, don't call it Mahjong, people don't want to hear Mahjong, we'll call it, you know, bubble sparkle pop, and you just, you, you click, you click on the thing, and when you, when tiles disappear, they explode into sparkles, you know, I mean, I could just see this happening, and it's two dollars for the mobile app, it'll keep you busy on the bus, it'll keep your eyes happy, because Things are blinking and, and sparkling. It, it would be a hit. And th- this is that kind of game. I mean, because all you're doing ultimately is you're just, you're clicking on one tile and you're finding a match for that tile and they're both gone. And you just, you're chiseling away at this board and it seems impossible. It seems like you've run out of all potential tiles. There's, there can't be anything possibly left now with an opening to 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 be able to be removed and yet the game hasn't said that it's over so there must be something available and so you're just scanning the board scanning the board i i I, i've only played it really in one player mode like even when i was playing with my friend um it was 
we played as just because I think it must be the default setting of of K Mahjong that you're gonna just play as one person. Um, you know, I didn't even, it never even occurred to me, honestly, to see if there's a two player mode, like a competitive mode game, new numbered game, new. No, I I don't, I don't know that there's a competitive mode on this. That's interesting. It never occurred to me until I opened the Wikipedia page here to try to see like how old this game was and to see if there was any clarity on the rules, which by the way, there is no clarity on the rules. (laughs) The Wikipedia page is, I don't even know how long. It's like, it's several screenfuls. And there are so many variants of the rules listed. It's just, it's, it's astonishing. It's just like, if we can talk for a moment about documentation, this is, this is a very complete documentation, I'll bet. But is it helpful and useful documentation? I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I guess it depends on what you're looking for. But I just feel like Mahjong is a simple enough game that it should be able to be summed up in about three steps. Find a tile with an eastern or western edge open. Find the matching tile with the east or west edge open. Remove those two tiles. That's three steps. One, two, three. And then a sentence at the bottom that says the game is over once tiles uh, are all gone. You, you've won the game once the tiles are all gone, or uh, or or the and the game is over when you can find no more tiles to remove. Done. Three steps. Uh, when I say three steps, of course, I always allow for cheats like uh, sentence above, sentence below, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, so that's that's mahjong. It's a fun game. It honestly is. I don't know. I don't know that this game is I don't I don't think I see this game as a desktop game. I I really do. I I think that if I was going to play Mahjong, I would play it on a mobile on the bus, which I don't even take anymore. But back when I took a bus, when I had a place to go to a to on a bus, I would play the, the yeah, I would definitely play Mahjong on 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 a bus. I I can see that working out really nicely. Um I think it's a clever game. It's uh really I guess, you know, again, Wikipedia page says that it is actually, there's a competitive mode. Like there, you can do that as a competitive game. And it even goes so far as to say it is a game of skill, strategy, and luck. And to me, it just feels like luck. So I don't know if something else would sort of surface if I played it as a competitive game. Um, But in terms of sort of just a one-player game, I feel like you have essentially, you know, you're just, I I guess the strategy is you trying to decide whether it is better to remove a tile on the edge or to remove a tile that is then going to reveal another tile for you to remove. Although, I mean, technically, I think revealing them on the edge does the same thing. So yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm not so sure about the strategy part. But then again, as I've said, haven't played it competitively. And so the strategy might not be apparent to me. But anyway, K Mahjong, it seems like a pretty good version of that game to me, uh, having never played any other version of that game. But it seems useful, seems, or not useful, seems fun, seems like a good, um, a good little pastime. So if you've never played, try it out. If you've played, you know, like the Windows 98 version that I assume must have existed, then try this one. Maybe it's better. Maybe it's um, better graphics, probably, I imagine. I don't know. Was Windows 98 bad or good? I forget. I guess it was in 98. Couldn't have been that great, right? 
Um, anyway, K Mahjong. Next up is K Mail. I could go on really forever about K Mail. K Mail is an application that I use a lot. And I have a history with K Mail as well. Um, K Mail is the, I mean, it's, it's the default desktop mail application that you use if you're, if you, if you, that you get if you, if you install Plasma Desktop. That, that's just, it, it comes with K Mail. That's the obvious choice. Now, when I started using KDE in a professional setting back in 2009, uh, t- uh, 10, 10 or 11, when I started doing that, I, 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 I tried to use Kmail then, and it let me down a couple of times, and and usually at the worst possible moment, right? That's it's always that's always the ones that stick in your mind. Something happens, you need some information, and you need it quickly. You open up Kmail, and it says something's wrong with the database of your mail. I'm gonna have to rebuild now. See you in 30 minutes. It's the most frustrating thing you'll ever experience. And unfortunately for Kmail, in my memory, for for years and years and years, for for a good ten years, in my memory was that it will it, that that Kmail will disappoint you when you need it the most. That was the impression that it had left me with. Now, at that same job, when I was using Kmail on one machine, I also happened to be using. No, no, I think I I stopped using Kmail. That was what it was. I I I, I abandoned Kmail. Which was okay at the time anyway, because honestly, I needed to be using Thunderbird because I had everyone else on Thunderbird. And, and, you know, there's nothing worse, honestly, than when someone calls their systems administrator with a question, their, their systems administrator slash support desk slash, slash, you know, everything else, um, with a question about how do I, I don't know, send a new mail or something. And the sysadmin says, I don't know. So I, I had to use, I had to use Thunderbird ultimately. And, and that was fine. So I was using Thunderbird pretty actively for several years. Um, but on my personal computer, I, I, I tried to use Kmail and eventually I had to walk away from Kmail. And I was a Thunderbird user for a, ver- a very long time. And, and I'm going to make, I'll make a middle note here to, to talk about mail clients versus web clients. But anyway, so I was using Thunderbird, quite happy with it, and then Firefox, or no, sorry, Mozilla announced that Thunderbird was going away. They were no longer supporting Thunderbird or something ridiculous like that. Now, that has been sort of reversed now, I think. Either that or or the Thunderbird community has sort of um, rallied and become its own thing. I'm not 100% sure what the structure is. But if you go to Thunderbird.net today, you'll see that Thunderbird is sort of back. I mean, it, it never really went away. It, honestly, I mean, it's it's always been there. But I guess now people, you know, it's like you can actually go download it and and get like new features and stuff like that. So that's very good. I think it's honestly a little bit a little bit um, essential uh, to ha- to have Thunderbird around because I mean that's that's is that kind of the last great cross-platform mail client, I think? I, I can't think of another one. Uh, open source, obviously. I'm sure there's something out there, some weird Eudora, you know, still still kicking around or something. But, I mean, Thunderbird, open source, cross-platform mail client. Okay, so anyway, Kmail. When did I finally get back into Kmail? Slackware 14, I think, is when I finally got back into into Kmail. Or 14. Dot, was there a 14.1? 
I've already forgotten what I used to run on this computer. Whatever was before 15, maybe that was when I got into Kmail. I don't remember. But, you know, I I kept checking back in with Kmail. And at some point, I think it was like the shift between um, whatever it used to be and then the new one, Baloo, uh, B-A-L-O-O, for file indexing or something like that it it had something to do with file indexing i feel like and and K- when when they switched to the back end of what was doing the indexing i i if i'm if i'm remembering correctly that's when kmail kind of started to work for me again or i should say that's when it stopped breaking for me cuz it always worked it just wouldn't work reliably and now i don't know i've felt pretty good about kmail and i've i've used it uh really ever since i'm i'm trying to think i mean i guess i could go back in in my email and probably kind of f- sort of figure out yeah maybe uh since 2014 so yeah i think i have a feeling like i may have been um something i may have been using this since new zealand for me which would have been 2013 or 14. So, yeah. Um, Kmail has been working again since 2014 for me. And I haven't really deviated from that, to be honest. Um, I, I haven't had a need to. I just haven't really. I mean, on my work computer, I use Evolution, Evolution. Uh, and, and that works well enough for me. Happy with that. But Kmail, I mean, that's the one that it's my daily driver. I use it. I use it nonstop. It is what I get all of your emails in as all your emails to me come in through kmail so that's my primary client i would say i have mutt i have evolution i have others hanging around but if you asked me you know on a day-to-day basis what what can i reliably count on opening up for email it would be kmail got three different accounts going into here well actually more than that but a lot of them are sort of stuffed together on a server before they even reach me but but so server server accounts i have three different ones coming into kmail and kmail is a very traditional style um email client there's nothing fancy about it i wouldn't say um and i would say that i probably like the email client that you might remember from 20 uh, 2008 or something, or, or maybe even earlier. Like that's essentially how I use this thing. Um, I've got a list of folders on the left uh, of inboxes and such on the left, and then I've got what whatever's highlighted on the left. Of course, is uh, listed on the right with a panel, a split panel, and so whatever gets selected on the right, whatever email pops up, so that I can read it in the bottom panel, and that's how I use my email client. I don't do, I know that there are some today and, and I, I could probably realistically change the settings in Kmail to make it act and, and sort of use a different layout, but I don't. I use the standard everyday old style. This is how you're going to read your email style. Like this is, it's just it. I've got my mailboxes on the left. I've got the messages on the top right. And I've got the message, the selected message on the bottom right. Simple. And when I want to reply to something, I go up to the top toolbar and click either reply or I click and hold and go to reply at all or reply to mailing list or reply to author or whatever kind of sub 
sub-selection I need. I can forward mail. I can check mail with the check mailbox. I can write a new message with the new message button. That's the extent of my use of K-mail. It's not fancy. I don't do anything special with it. It's just an email client, and it's the one that I rely on, and I really like it. Why do I like it? A couple of different reasons. Uh, in the style of my previous episode, I could do a, a list a list thing. Um Three three great reasons to use K-Mail. One, it doesn't hide the mail headers. This is so important for good, for, for, for a more secure internet than what we have today, than what we are devolving into. Mail headers are so important. And I understand that people don't always know what to look for in an email header. Like, I get that. It, it can be very confusing. To me, that says, let's educate people. Let's experiment around with UI design, UX design, whatever, and and help people to understand what they're actually looking for when they get an email. And instead, for whatever reason, everything seems to have gone in the direction of, let's just pretend like there's no such thing as email headers and hide them from view. In, In some cases, let's just make them functionally impossible to view. I mean, there might be some email applications out there that actually make them impossible to view. I don't know. But I mean, I think even in like Gmail, I think you can look at the email headers. It's just that you have to like view the source or something. And then it's just a big dump of plain text, which I mean, that's not helpful for anyone, you know, unless you're the person who already needs to to see the email headers. Uh, So anyway, I think it's, it's, it's vital. It's so important for your email application to show you your email headers. At least things like the actual sender, you know, the sender email address rather than just the colloquial name of the person who sent it to you. That sort of thing. So Kmail makes it really easy to see the email headers. You can investigate on who exactly sent you something and how it got to you, through what servers it was forwarded, and all that other information quite easily with Kmail, and I love that. Second reason you should be using Kmail. It's a client. It's an email client. That doesn't seem to be that big of a deal anymore. People seem to think that email clients are just fine when they're built into the web. And, you know, strictly speaking, that's, I agree with that. Like, I love Squirrel Mail and, and Horde and all of these other interfaces that exist for email. Unfortunately, those aren't the ones that people are really, really using. People are logging into Gmail or into, uh, Proton Mail or, or probably Outlook, you know, whatever, whatever online service you're using, people are logging into th- that that client and they're using the online version of of that email client that email service rather and that's strictly speaking not a problem but i think what is what 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 it starts to empower companies to do is to stop following any kind of actual standard and we've seen this with gmail obviously they're the big important one everyone's got a gmail account some some people actually use it some people don't but everyone's got one right whether it's just for authentication or or for junk mail or for your actual email gmail's really really significant they're big things that they do affect other people and and gmail today has made it so difficult to interact with gmail from outside of gmail uh that i mean honestly to 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 really 
I mean, functionally, you cannot run your own email server. You can, but I mean, in order to actually make it interact with the rest of the world, because the rest of the world is on Gmail, there are, there's a lot of stuff that you have to do, and it, it's, it's, it's not great. It is not a good thing. Now, I'm not saying that email, the, the email, the model of email communication was ever perfect. I'm, I'm not convinced of that personally. But I, I definitely don't think that it, that, that the answer is for Gmail to come up with their own, um, rules and, and protocols and then have everyone else adapt to that. Because in many cases, you can't adapt to it. So that's a problem. And being able to use an email client is, is really, really important for just open communication. And I don't know that using an email client necessarily sends a message to anyone. I mean, literally, sometimes it doesn't. But having that separation, that mental separation between the email service, the email, the, the email as a protocol, and the way that you access the messages, it's, it's significant because you, you can see then that when you sign up for a service and they don't let you access your email from outside their service, suddenly you think, okay, well, wait a minute, that's that doesn't seem very convenient to me. That doesn't seem like I own that information. Why would that be? So it's important to have separate clients and it's important to promote the use of separate clients. And, you know, there, I mean, there are lots of great reasons for having a separate client too. I mean, I realize that for a lot of people, not having the internet just that's not a that's not a problem that you foresee you just don't think about what happens when the internet goes away because as far as we can tell in a lot of areas of the world the internet never goes away that's ridiculous and if it does it's just really briefly and then you're back online and 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 you know you just have a cup of coffee while you wait for everything to sort of fix itself not a big deal but i mean in reality there are places that don't have the internet all the time or don't have a, a really, really great connection all the time, and you don't want to be connected to everything all the time because uh, it costs too much, or or it just it, it's it's using up too much of your bandwidth to have that open, or whatever. Well, the client obviously, or not obviously, the client, a client, an email client, a good email client, copies your messages from the server to your local computer, and so you have a local copy of these things. And that's that's great if you don't have the internet all the time, or if you can't rely on having the internet all the time. And that's a real thing. Like, for, for many, many people, that's a real thing. I mean, for some of us, it's not. And I mean, it used to be a real thing for me. But then I got fiber in the little, tiny, little rural town I live in now. And, and somehow, like, I have probably the best internet I've ever had in my life. But um, other people don't don't have that. So it's it's really, really significant to enable clients to be a usable alternative. And you just shouldn't have to be logged in to a service all the time. That's just not, that's just not right. You shouldn't have to go to the website and leave your, your web browser open to that thing all the time. That's, that's silly to me. Like I don't get emails every moment of the day. I'll just leave my client open running in the background. It can ping the server to see if there are any new messages and if there are it can download those messages and alert me on an as uh, on a need to know basis like when i need to know it can alert me i do not need my an email client open all the time in my web browser logged into that service authenticated to that to that service provider all the time every moment of the day and when that does happen when you do that i get pretty suspicious i start to get kind of 
suspicious about why that provider would want me logged in every moment of every day to their server. Not saying they're doing anything or monitoring anything, but what if they were? So yeah, I don't, I don't love that. And then the third reason you should be using Kmail is the integration with the rest of KDE. So if you're using KDE, Kmail is nice because it is integrated with other components of KDE. I mean, it is part of the PIM, the PIM, Personal Information Management Suite of KDE. So you have things like your calendar and your notebook and your to-do list and all of these other things. You've got all of that stuff uh, within the contact interface, which, I mean, you don't have to run Kmail in contact. You can you, you can run that as a separate application. But there there's... There's nice levels of integration with the rest of KDE. And so it's, it's little things mostly. I mean, I, there might be bigger things that I'm not taking advantage of, but for me, it's little things. It's like, um, I've got an email here that looks like it needs, uh, I, I could probably follow up on this, but I, I don't feel like following up on it right now. So I, I just right click just anywhere in the message in the, in the email that I'm reading, add follow up reminder on such and such a date, add that to my personal calendar click okay and now i've just i've just scheduled i've just told kde to remind me to follow up to this email on this date and it gets added to my calendar just like that super easy super fast and like i say it's not, it's not a not not huge that's not 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 really game changing i i guess but it sure is convenient i mean it really is uh, of course, it, it also taps into the rest of the personal, the the PIM stuff that you have. So your address book and things like that, all of that stuff is available to you through through Kmail because you you you've entered it presumably into your you know in, in into the the back end, uh, the, the contact list uh, of of KDE. So that's that's pretty useful. Um, it's, it's probably even more useful if you're actually using it with um with uh, LDAP and things like that. But I mean, and I have used it. I have used Kmail with LDAP at uh, an old job, which which was nice, even nicer. You know, you, you, you had pop-up email addresses that you didn't even know you had access to. That was quite nice. Um, that'll happen with any, you know, really any email client, even the online ones usually make an allowance for that. So that's not that big of a deal, but it is, it is awfully nice. Okay. And then finally, the fourth reason, I know I only said there were three reasons. I, I thought of a fourth as I was looking through some of these emails, the ability to not load HTML data uh, immediately by default. That is so huge to me. I just love it. Um, in, in Kmail, when I get an email, I don't view any remote HTML content unless I tell it to grab that remote HTML contact. Now, uh, co content. Now, if, if you've been an email user for a long time, you might know that there's an old, old trick of embedding something into an email. So, sometimes it's hidden. Sometimes it's very, very just obvious because it doesn't have to be hidden, to be honest. But you can, you can have a thing in your, in, in an email in an HTML email that because it's remote, because it links back to a server, when someone opens that email and activates the email client to, to fetch that content, then the owner of that server knows potentially exactly when you looked at the email and that you looked at the email. Not a big deal, probably, 
nine times out of ten. Who cares, right? Well, maybe you do care. Maybe you don't want to send out essentially a, re- a return receipt back with that email. Now, I mean, there's a lot of HTML content out there that just, you know, like it's a big mass email and it's all pointing back to the same image. And so functionally, you're just one of a million readers or maybe not a million, but, you know, a hundred thousand readers who have, who, who've downloaded that image. Not a big deal. I'm just saying that it's potentially, it's a, it's, it's possible to have a custom HTML uh, or a custom element that is linked back through HTML in a message that someone uh, could then look at the email, essentially ping your server with a request for that element, and now you know exactly when and where and why they've read that email. Not actually all of those things, but you know that they've read the email, you know when they've read it and so on. So that's um, that's something that if you don't feel like sending that information back to whoever has sent you an email message, uh, disabling automatic loading of HTML content in an HTML message is quite useful. And that is something that Kmail allows you to do. So there's four good reasons for using Kmail when I only promised three. Now I'm going to promise you coffee. Although actually the the actual fulfillment of that promise is entirely up to you because I have no power to ensure that you get coffee. But I I am encouraging you to go get coffee. I'm going to go get coffee. I'll promise you that. And we'll come back and finish up the show. I'm back. I have coffee. It's a different kind of coffee than I've had. I went to uh, a little city called Dunedin the other weekend. It's about an hour away from where I live. And it's south south end of the South Island of New Zealand. Uh, and I went to Dunedin for a weekend because I live in a pretty rural town right now. And it's nice to get back into the city on occasion. I'm, I consider myself a city person, really. So in Dunedin, went to a coffee place got some coffee beans, brought them back, very excited to try them. I was pretty nervous once I tasted the first cup because it was terrible. And so I thought, okay, well, obviously the method of... And so I've gotten myself a coffee grinder. I don't remember if I've said this yet, but yeah, I got myself a coffee grinder. So it's a proper grinder. I'm no longer using a food processor to grind coffee. It's much, much... I'm in a much better place now with grinding coffee. And... And so I had this new coffee, I had the coffee grinder, and I tried it in my percolator, and it was horrible, just terrible. And I know there's a school of thought that says, well, the percolator is terrible anyway, but I, I like it, uh, and it was horrible. So then I tried it in my desk, uh, my desktop, my uh, stovetop espresso machine maker, a little pot, mocha pot, whatever, and it was terrible. And... In the end, I finally figured out that what was going on was I, I just wasn't putting enough coffee grounds into the into the mix. I, I it just I don't know what it is about this specific roast, but it just it really kind of it, it needs a lot of coffee grounds for some reason, like more than what I normally use to taste like coffee. But provided that you put enough in there, it is it is really good. It's nice 
bold coffee, which, you know, I don't, I don't love a dark roast usually. And I wouldn't, I don't actually think that this is a particularly dark roast, interestingly. It, but the flavor of it, again, as long as you put enough coffee into the, into your coffee maker of choice, it is quite bold, quite, quite sort of not, not strong, just it's there. It's, it's, uh, it's a, a heavy flavor. And it is quite good. I've been having it sort of every other day. So I've had my my normal coffee, which I don't remember what it's called now. And by normal, oh no, I, I of course I remember what it's called. I have another trading card right here. It is called B two oh Milk Blend is what it's called. B two Milk Blend from Flight Coffee. So that's my standard one. Uh, and then I have this on the on altern, alternating days. And I do that just because uh, I like to mix it up for the old palate, really, because uh, I find that if I just stick with one coffee, then you just kind of forget what's special about that coffee. So I like to mix it up a little bit. So that's what I'm drinking today is this, uh, this I think it's called Traverse, whatever that means. That's what it's called, though, Traverse, the bold coffee of Traverse. Okay, so that's where I am with coffee. Let's talk about where we are with software. Well, we've just gone through K-Mail, and now the... Um, the next exciting one on the list is Kmail Account Wizard. Uh, this is a setup wizard for Kmail that takes you through the process of creating an email account. That's all I'm going to say about it. It is a GUI little pop-up thing that happens when you start Kmail for the first time, and it helps you set up a new account. Um, I, 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 I must have gone through it at some point, but it's been a while now, so I'm not going to talk too much about it. I could install it on a virtual machine, but as I recall, it, it's a fine wizard. It's fine. It's fine. I still, honestly, I I think email setup is just too hard. I think email itself is a complex system. Maybe it needs to be complex. I don't know. But I keep thinking about, for instance, Mastodon. Let's think about Mastodon for a moment. I mean, people have to have the servers running. People have to have Mastodon running. So you have to sign up with a server or you have to run your own server. But that sort of, that the ease with which mastodon functions in terms of sort of setting it up it's just so easy you just even if you're in a client you just point it at the thing that you that that you have an account on and you're and you're done it's you're done um people used to say oh email should go away and we should all use twitter which i obviously have lots of problems with <laughs> um you Email, an open an open protocol that anyone can implement and use, should go away. Let's use this proprietary technology on on you know horrible idea, right? But now I think I'm starting to understand what they what they might have been sort of feeling. If not, you know, it, the sentiment may have or the the expression may have been wrong, but the sentiment maybe there maybe there was something to that. Now I wouldn't I wouldn't wish the replacement of email with with Mastodon on my worst enemy. Uh, not because I don't like Mastodon. I, I, I quite like it. I think it's great at what it does. But organizationally, like, f- trying to find an old message in Mastodon is just, it's horrible. It's terrible. So, no. You know, like, microblogging, or whatever we're calling it now, social media, is that what we're calling it? Should not replace email. But but the the ease with which you can set something up, it, it, that would be great, you know? And I think email's greatest problem, and that's in air quotes, because it's not really a problem, but for a lot of users, the problem is the the astounding amount of sort of 
flexibility in the configuration. You know, so you can have this SMTP server and you can have a POP protocol, you can have IMAP protocol, you could you could be using a different outgoing as than your incoming and you could have a different account than the login account. There's just all these complex things that it's really hard to keep track of. And I think that even something like Kmail account wizard can't really condense that into something that makes a whole lot of sense. The one thing that it does, one of the things that it does to really, really simplify that process is it tests things. It offers to be able to test something. Can it log in before you walk away from this screen? Can it log into the thing that you claim it should be able to log in? Can it send your authentication credentials using either SSL or TLS or whatever and get something back, you know? So there's, there's that kind of like, we're not going to let you proceed until we have confirmed that what you think you need to check your email or to send an email is what you actually need. And, and I think that's the biggest value add to Kmail account wizard. Next up is Kmail Transport. It is mail transport services for Kmail. Um, I don't remember what this consists of, so I'm going to have to look it up. Kmail Transport, all one string. Uh, it is a bunch of, yeah, framework, um, KDE, uh, KDE Framework 5, uh, header files, some CMake files, and translation files. That's that's what I thought. Okay, that's what KML Transport is. So it's obviously stuff to help developers get uh, send email through the KML uh, system, and or, or rather, it's to help KML developers send email. I guess would would be the better way to say that. K Inbox is a library for accessing mail storage in the inbox format. There are a different there, there are different ways that a system can store email once it grabs a email from the server and copies it to your local system. Couple of different, um, cu- couple of different systems. There's the inbox format. That's like M as in mailbox. Um, in the inbox, the the that format is the. It is a format in which. All of your emails are concatenated into a big plain text file, but some computer somewhere, or rather some software somewhere, knows some the special character or set of characters that separates one message from another, and and that's the idea. That's that's the that's the concept of an inbox. It, it works. I don't know, like. To me, like, does that make sense? I don't know. Is it better? Probably. I, I assume there's a reason for it for it existing, uh, and and I, I assume that people have considered the you know the the alternatives. So the other the other big popular one that I know of is Mailder, and Mailder does is is sort of I think it's like uh, it's a directory structure. Definitely. And I think it's single files, although I'm not sure. I haven't looked lately. Is the single, is it, um, is every message a single file or is, does a, does a, like a thread get concatenated together? Not sure. But, um, either way, there are a couple of different formats. And this is obviously the KDE framework library to help applications parse an inbox file. 
I don't know what special features this has over over you know standard inbox libraries. Uh, possibly nothing. It might just happen to be like this is what we're using here. This is what we came up with. I, I, I'm not 100% sure. It's a very small little package. It's got like um, a couple of header files, kinbox export, inbox, and inbox entry, and then some CMake files to help build it. Uh, and it compiles into a library of user lib64 libkf5inbox.so. So yeah, not not too sure about what it provides over anything else, but that's what KDE uses. And then that brings us to KMedia Player. Now, KMedia Player is not an application. It is a media player K-part. You'll recall, dear listener, from previous episodes that K-parts are, well, I mean, as the name suggests, parts of KDE applications that you get to use if you're an application developer, you can grab that sort of part and just embed it into your application. And I, and the, the word embed is probably not even right. You can just, you can use it in an application. And one of the, one of the places you see this kind of thing, I, I'm assuming, is, uh, when you're playing an album or, or music through Elisa, there's a, uh, an indicator in your, there's a media player indicator in your panel. And if you click on that media player, it pops up a nice little display of what you're currently playing. And it's got some controls and a little progress bar. And I'm, I think that's partly, you know, that's, that's K media player. I, I, I could be wrong. I haven't actually looked at the, um, at the source code of that. I, I'm not even sure where I would find that. I mean, it would be somewhere in the KDE Git. Uh, repository. But um, yeah, KMedia Player, um, it's got some header files that you can use. Uh, it's got the library that you can use and again, CMake and things like that. But um, yeah, it's just, it's just a, uh, it's a, it's a media player component for a KDE application. And that's, it's huge that this is the, this is one of the things like if you're going to be developing an application, this is one of those reasons that you might want to develop it within the KDE ecosystem, because they do have, they have such, such little developer treats here and there that you can just grab it and, and put it into your application. And just as uh, the, the, the little bit of development that I do for fun is you know, I, I have benefited so greatly, not from KDE, because I haven't developed anything within KDE before. Um, but, but I've, I've definitely developed things where someone will have a whole thing figured out and they'll deliver it in a way that you can just basically slot it into your application. And it brings like this whole new, I mean, it's this, it's, it's the core of your application potentially. It's, you know, like imagine writing a text editor for KDE for some reason. I don't know that there's a market for that, what with Kate and KWrite already existing and KDevelop. But I mean, that's a great point right there. I mean, like, look at KDevelop and, and look at the, the, the Kate part that it is using. It's just such an easy, easy thing to have. And it's, you know, in, in a way it's like a core component and 90% of it is done. 
And all you have to do is maybe add some extra syntax, uh, not syntax highlighting, but auto-completion or something like that based on the IDE or whatever. Um, you know, if you're doing a, uh, maybe you're doing a, a screenplay uh, text editor, you, you, you want to do something specific to screenplays or, or, or uh, whatever. So you, you could just grab the Kate part, put it into your application, and then all you have to do is develop the syntax rules to shift everything around and to detect what, what section of the thing that we're in. Are we in a character name or a character dialogue? Are we in stage direction, whatever. And suddenly you're, I mean, again, 90% of the, of the, of the features that anyone would expect from a text editor already exist for you. And all you have to do is the last 10% of just kind of making it into an application and giving you, you know, adding in the special things that you want to add in. Of course, I mean, I guess then there's the argument, well, why, why even bother making a new application? Why not just write a plugin for Kate? And that's a separate discussion, I guess. But the point is that these parts of applications, they, they are really, really significant. They're really nice for developers. And it's just such a big deal that KDE has so many great components that are shared among all the different applications because it, it it really as as a developer it makes your life a lot easier. K menu edit. This is a brilliant brilliant application. Probably one of my favorite things about KDE. Maybe because um, where you know the the computing experience that I came from before Linux, which is such ancient history at this point. I don't know why I always refer back to it. But, I mean, it is my history, and so even though it is ancient history at this point, um, it still, you know, it formed my my early computing experience. And, and, and that experience was once you – once I reached a certain point of sort of, of – of, of, okay, I've figured everything out about this computing platform as a user that I'm going to be able to figure out what can I do now. One of the things that I found found myself doing for a while was modifying my environment a lot. And one of the, the very, very first steps in the awareness that you could modify your environment as a computer user was modifying the look of the computer. And not just the computer screen, the background, the wallpaper, but but the icons the, the icon themes and 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 anything else I could I could do like I I remember at a time this is I think this was I think this is true there was a time I believe in Mac OS which is what I was using before I used Linux I think there was a time that you couldn't move the dock believe it or not from the bottom to like the side of the screen I I could be remembering this incorrectly but I, I think that might be true. Or maybe it was that you couldn't change the theme of the dock or something, but there was this quote-unquote hack, like this secret feature where you could actually go into a terminal and change the look of the dock or the, the position of the dock, something weird like that. It was silly, um, but you could do it, and it was a big deal. And And it was not easy. You know, You had to go in and set something differently, and that was a big deal. So anyway, on Linux, uh, obviously there's a lot of customization available. Um, but bizarrely, the, the, one of the first things I wanted to do on Linux, you know, was continue modifying the look of it. Like that was, that to me at the time was kind of like what power users did. Like you, you changed stuff. You, you, you modded like 
the look and feel of your environment, which I mean, it is important. And I'm not saying that I was wrong. I'm just saying, I don't know why it was like quite that important at the time, but it was. So if you right click on the K menu in KDE, you can go to edit uh, applications. And this is the K menu editor. You can go into any, you can go to, you know, whatever, whatever, uh, entry that you want. I'm actually going to delete this entry. Um, you can go to a, an entry, like here's Apache NetBeans IDE 13. Um, it's got an icon that's familiar to me. Actually, I don't want to change that now that I'm thinking about it. Here's, here's one without a an icon at all, actually. It's BlueJ, which is a... Do I even have that installed anymore? I'm not even sure if I do. It's a, it's a fun little uh, Java IDE, though. It's I wrote an article about it and needed it to be installed. And it is nice. I mean, it's it's okay anyway. Uh, here's a fish icon. It's actually for blue fish, but blue jay, blue fish. I guess that's close enough, right? Oh, here's a blue bird. There's a blue bird. Okay. So blue jay now has an icon. So you can just click on the icon slot and you can choose uh, an, an existing icon or you can browse and assign it your own icon, which is very exciting to some people. And then you save your menu and you're done. So you can modify your entire menu is what I'm trying to get to. Like that's the, that's the point here. Uh, and that is a potentially a big deal. That's very cool. Um, that's another thing that I need to delete. There's a lot of stuff in here that's probably left over from 2014. <laughs> like I, I've carried around. Uh, yeah, here's something that doesn't even have a, a menu icon. Uh, it's a mapping software for games. So how about this map software application? Okay. So anyway, my point is that you can go in and you can uh modify various entries you can modify icons you can modify the name of an application a comment around the application uh the command that gets issued when the application is launched and so on so it's a very graphical view of essentially a dot desktop file which i think is really important because there are a considerable number of applications out there that are distributed for Linux, not within any kind of Linux ecosystem. They didn't get the memo about um, Flatpak. They did, or they, or they don't feel like it's a justified, uh, you know, sort of effort. Didn't get the memo about RPMs and Debs, or they don't feel like it's worth the effort. Um, so they're just distributing the thing, you know, on a Git repository somewhere in the releases tab or the tags tab. You download it as a tar.xz file, untar it, and there it is. It's there. It's ready for you to use, but it's just in your downloads folder. What do you do with it? Well, maybe you're savvy. You put it in slash opt, but now how do you still, you still need it to be in your menu? Well, right click on your menu, edit applications, make a new entry for it, new item, make a new uh, entry for it, point it at the, at the executable, give it an icon. If you can't find the, a, an appropriate icon in sort of your icon system, uh, icon library, then browse for, uh, uh, the icon file that comes with that application in slash opt and add that to the thing. Super easy, super convenient. And I think again, just because there are applications out there that don't package themselves correctly for Linux, and this is important they don't get packaged by anyone, then sometimes you have the opportunity to to sort of manually correct or make an addition to mo manually modify your application's menu. That's what K-Menu Edit lets you do. I think that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.
Thanks for listening. My name is Klaatu. You can reach me anytime over email with feedback or comments, tips, or just to say hi. My email address is klaatu at slackermedia.info. You can also reach me on the Mastodon network, not Klaatu, at mastodon.xyz. The show's intro and outro music is by Fat Chance Lester. You can find their music on bandcamp.com or on gnuworldorder.info in the archive you'll find a music directory containing the album from which this music has been extracted until next time thanks for listening and keep the source open